I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. Already in the grip of a deadly pandemic, the nation has been convulsed by days of protest over the death of George Floyd. In many cities, the demonstrations have devolved into vandalism, looting, fires, and clashes with police. A country of shut-ins is now outdoors, together again. A country reeling from public health and economic crises exploded after just the latest incident exposing a deep-rooted inequality in all aspects of American life, from law enforcement to health care. Mass protests against police have brought thousands into the streets, and they're raising concerns about new coronavirus outbreaks. How many super spreaders were in that crowd? Well, they were mostly young people. How many young people went home and kissed their mother hello or shook hands with their father or hugged their father or their grandfather or their grandmother or their brother or their sister? and spread a virus. That was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo earlier today. Dr. John Brownstein is an epidemiologist at Boston Children's Hospital and an ABC News contributor. From an epidemiologist perspective, how do you view these crowds of demonstrators? Yeah, it's an unfortunate situation in that we have two competing public health crises happening at the exact same time. And so it creates a challenge in dealing with both of them simultaneously when the activities of one are not aligned with the activities that are required for the other. Um, And, you know, as we've said all along, mass gatherings create a a great opportunity for virus transmission. Um, On the other hand, these protests are incredibly necessary. Um, And so the best thing we can do is to offer guidelines and practices for safe participation in these events Clearly, it's not bringing risk down to zero, and and we expect to see increase in cases as a result. But again, you know, these are necessary activities in this moment in America. And so what is one to do if you are uh, moved to go out into the street? You know, I think it's everyone's right to be able to go and do this. Um, The only thing we encourage is, of course, mask wearing, hand sanitization, um, you know, practicing social distancing where you can, you know, trying to do so and participating as safely as possible. Um, You know, that's the best we can do and and hope that um, these events don't sort of have secondary consequences, which of course would be, you know, emergence of, of new waves of transmission. The other concern clearly is that in situations where conflict arises and the use of pepper spray um, comes into into play, you know, these can induce coughs, um, which again, further, you know, might worsen, you know, virus transmission. People have been shut in, they want to go express themselves. And yet this precise kind of gathering does pose a risk of transmitting the virus. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're calculating risks. And, you know, in times before, you know, it, it, it wasn't a necessity to go out and demonstrate um, solidarity and an important, you know, position of the need for change, right? At this moment, that is more critical. And so clearly, you know, there's a balancing of risks. But again, you know, we're police brutality is another public health crisis that needs to be addressed just as much as the pandemic does. How concerned are you that there could be a wave of infection that results from all of the protests that we've been seeing? Clearly, the protests 
have maintained place in, in, in places that are still at the very early stages of reopening. You know, here in Boston, that's true. Same is true in New York City, other places that have experienced the worst of the virus. So, you know, and these are not places where transmission um, has come down to zero. There's still active transmission happening in the community. So we expect to see, you know, cases rise as a result of this. Dr. John Brownstein with us from Boston. Amid all of this, businesses are reopening from their coronavirus closures. As of today, you can get a haircut again in Connecticut. Chris Rose is the owner of Professional Barbershop in downtown Hartford, where he's been cutting hair for the last 30-odd years. How is it to be open again, Chris? It's great to be open again. Um, After two and a half months of being closed with zero income, it's uh, it feels good again. It feels like uh, the country's getting back to normal now, in a slow pace, but seems like things are getting back to normal. Did you have a crowd of customers waiting for you to open this morning? A huge crowd, people calling like crazy, um, making uh, appointments for today all week long, and. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, today's, Mondays are usually our slow day because, you know, barbershops are usually closed on Mondays and it feels like a, a Friday over here at the barbershop today. That's got to be a good feeling for you after, as you say, a couple of months of being closed. Oh yeah. Fantastic feeling. You know, it's, it was, uh, it was tough to just sit at home two and a half months and um just i don't know you know what it it makes me uh definitely uh definitely feel you know i definitely don't want to retire anytime soon you know it's nice to to go back to work how are you taking precautions or anything you're doing differently to to make sure that everybody's staying healthy and safe well, we're following all the uh, the rules with the state of Connecticut. Everybody's got masks on. Um, we have no waiting room. We're disinfecting everything before and after customers. So we are definitely taking precautions on uh, nobody getting sick or spreading anything. We're temp- taking people's temperatures where they come in. Um, we're not even letting people hang up coats or jackets or anything. There's, and, you know, it's just, just very, uh, it, it's different. It's definitely different now, the barbershop, um, feeling, but it's, it's, it's coming along, you know? I mean, I know I'm desperate for a haircut. How rough a shape are these people's heads in? I feel like we're a nation of mullets. You know what? It seems like it, it, everybody is walking in here. It's like, uh, Going back to the 70s. Everybody's got a big head full of hair. They all look like Will Ferrell and uh, Anchorman. (laughs) Chris Rosa from Professional Barbershop in Connecticut. It probably won't take much convincing to get people back to a barbershop. But what about the subway or a commuter train or a bus? As New York City prepares to begin phase one of its reopening next week, ABC's Amy Robach spoke to the interim president of the MTA, Sarah Feinberg, about safety and the subway. Governor Cuomo has said reopening doesn't mean going back to how things were in the past. So how is the MTA preparing for this phase one of reopening? 
That's right. Well, it's good to be with you. So the first thing to know is we've been planning for this reopening since the beginning. So we've been planning for this now for many, many weeks. Uh, the first thing that uh, we've been doing is cleaning and disinfecting the system. So uh, we now clean and disinfect uh, the stations twice a day, and we clean and disinfect all of the, the fleet of uh, rail cars multiple times a day. So we're doing everything we can to make sure that the cars and the stations and the buses that people will be getting on are as clean and safe as possible. We're also doing taking a lot of other steps, making sure that we've got hand sanitizer on hand and stations. You know, masks will absolutely be required, but we'll also have a few masks on hand for those who, you know, for that first day or two, forget their mask at home. So we're trying to do everything we can to both make sure that the system is as safe and clean as possible and also communicate with our riders about what they can do to keep themselves safe. I'm curious what you think about the CDC recommendations that workers should avoid mass transit like the MTA. What do you think about that? Well, look, it's, it just doesn't work in, in New York City. So if if people in New York City decide not to use mass transit and everyone gets in a car instead, no one's getting anywhere. No one is getting to work that day at all. Uh, you will run out of gas on one of the bridges and you will be stuck in bumper to bumper traffic on the FDR or some other road. But but no one's getting to work that day. So, you know, look, I think the CDC is doing the best they can under very tough circumstances. I, I absolutely disagree with them on this one. That might work in some places. It might work in the suburbs. It might work in rural America. Uh, it's not going to work in New York City. Yeah. And even if you did get to where you were going, good luck parking. All right. Sarah Feinberg, thank you very much for joining us today and for all of your efforts during these times. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. Concerns growing that widespread protests may cause coronavirus cases and death tolls to rise. With me now is ABC chief medical correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. There are so many concerns today, but a lot of people are starting to go back to work. Cities are reopening, and so workplaces are trying to figure out if testing can be used as a way to get employees back to work. Well, we're certainly looking at that, and that's the hope. But we even heard the Atlanta mayor say if you were protesting this weekend, you should be probably tested for coronavirus this week because you're close together, you're yelling. In terms of testing, here's what we know right now for a deep dive. The FDA authorized the first home option saliva test back on May 7th. That may be hugely important as people try to go back to work. It was developed by researchers at Rutgers University. There is one FDA-authorized at-home nasal swab, um, but the thinking is really that saliva testing, because it's so much less uncomfortable than the nasal swab, may be better as it gets brought into the mainstream. And we don't have long-term data on the saliva testing, but what is the thinking about saliva versus the swab? Well, that's a really important question, Amy, because anytime you talk about a test, you have to look at how accurate it is and what kind of results it gives. Theories are that it likely results in lower exposure to healthcare workers, which is why so much attention is going towards this type of saliva testing. And in terms of data, it may actually give more consistent results Mm. than the nasal swab. So again, what that's referring to is false positives or false negatives. A test is only as good as the data or results you can get from it. So a lot of enthusiasm or hope about this saliva test. And yet, we talk about this a lot, there are still so many unknowns. Right, and so one of the biggest is how or if this will be utilized, let's say in workplace or even school communities, how it can be manufactured and then processed in 
massive quantities because that is a key that that involves supply chain issues. And then again, cost. You have to talk about cost. If something is available like I'm hoping for, let's say on the drugstore shelf, it has to be inexpensive enough that people can go get it and use it in many cases repeatedly. Right, because it's not one and done. Probably not. All right. Dr. Jen, thank you very much. Over the weekend, as we mentioned, a wave of protests swept across this country in response to the death of George Floyd. In Oakland, as in many cities, what started as peaceful protests turned violent with reports of vandalism and looting. Here to discuss this is Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff. And Mayor Schaff, last night's we know that shots were fired at the police administration building. And unlike other cities in the Bay Area, you have not imposed a curfew. Why? Uh, We have not imposed a curfew at this time because we want to focus our law enforcement resources on people who are committing criminal acts, violence, vandalism, looting. And we did make 60 arrests last night. Um, And we recognize that we we are not taking that off the table. We are constantly assessing the conditions and the intelligence that we have. But if we do impose a curfew, It's with the knowledge that historically curfews have been used as tools of government oppression and racial bias. And so it's very important that we recognize that historical context should we choose to use what is a pretty indiscriminate tool. Again, last night we were able to be very effective at bringing people to justice, removing them from doing the harm to our community, but it is at an unacceptable level. We certainly are looking at every tool at our disposal, even though we recognize the historical context of this particular tool. And, you know, obviously we are in really tough times, even before this, with this pandemic, business owners struggling. What would you like to say to those business owners in Oakland who are now also concerned about their property and their safety right now? Yeah, we are in a lot of pain in this city to wake up and see, you know, our beloved community trashed with with hateful messages graffitied everywhere and incredible damage to not just, you know, big corporate uh, stores, but little mom and pops, many businesses owned by people of color. And and that is what has been so painful. You know, Oakland was one of the very first parts of this whole country to go into a shelter in place. We've been taking the coronavirus pandemic very seriously. And so these small business folks are just hanging on by a thread already. And they are so sympathetic. Uh, You know, this is Oakland. We are the birthplace of social movements. Uh, we, we have been doing this hard work around racial social justice for a long time. And so to see these, these store owners uh, that have put their entire lives into their livelihoods, uh, it, it has been heartbreaking. But we are continuing to uh, create safe space for those who want to express their justifiable rage and grief at the national travesty of racism. 
but we are also trying to protect our community. And it has been very disconcerting just to see the national level of civil unrest. No, certainly, certainly. And, we, and we've heard actually from the Atlanta mayor earlier today about this next question. How concerned are you about the potential spread of the coronavirus in your city now as a result of all of these people gathering in close contact during these protests? I am terrified because let's be clear, this virus spreads so easily. And I am very concerned that two weeks from now, we will see a tremendous spike. On Friday night, we had nearly 8,000 protesters all in a single tight group. That is not safe. Uh, I will commend um, other kind of uh, activists organized um, a car caravan uh, to demonstrate yesterday, 2,000 cars. Now that was socially distant and also expressing appropriately during the daytime, uh, raising up the issue that is uh, really in people's hearts right now, but people cannot afford to get sick. And many of the, the impacts last night were in the very neighborhoods uh, that have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus. And, and that has been just what has really been painful as a mayor that, that is so committed to the safety and well-being of my community. Now, Mayor Schaaf, over the weekend, two federal officers stationed outside a federal building there in downtown Oakland were shot. Unfortunately, one of those officers was killed. And a senior official from Homeland Security tells ABC News that shooting is related to the protests over Floyd's death. Authorities are calling it an act of domestic terrorism. What can you tell us about this investigation right now? Yeah, our hearts go out to the friends and families of Patrick Underwood. He is the federal agent who was killed on Friday night. And this level of hatred and animos is is just killing our country. It is ripping us apart. Uh, All this harm is not advancing the message. Um, My understanding is that whether or not it is related, is still under investigation. It is being seen as an act of domestic terrorism. And we certainly hope that the FBI and federal investigators bring Mr. Underwood's killer to justice. Well, we certainly want to thank you, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, for taking the time to speak with us today during these times. Thank you. Up next, right here when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton joining us with your coronavirus questions, plus the beloved tradition looking a lot different this year for many families, the virtual summer camp that may offer a getaway without ever leaving home. Welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here in the house. And Dr. Jen, there's a new study out that is looking at the connection between diabetics and complications with COVID-19. Yeah, this was really interesting. It was a study uh, done in France, and they were looking at patients with diabetes, both types, type 1 and type 2, because usually when we hear the word diabetes, without even saying it, we're really kind of dealing with the people with type 2 diabetes. But this study in France found that 1 in 10 patients with diabetes died 
in the first seven days after hospitalization for COVID-19. One in five patients with diabetes needed ventilatory support in terms of breathing. They need to be put on a ventilator. Um, In terms of this group, they found higher rates of death against with men with diabetes, with obese men with diabetes, and with diabetes alone. And they teased it out. 89% had type 2 diabetes. 3% had type 1 diabetes. And again, the thinking is that just having diabetes can alter our immune response, our basic inflammation level, which may then interact with COVID-19. And so learning more about this population, really, really important because we've known really from the beginning that they're at much higher risk. And so you always say it, it's important to know how you can use results. So what can we do about exactly. these findings? Exactly. And so I think one of, the, one of the hopes or directions in the future is that if you really understand how high risk this group is, then could they be screened differently? Could they get aggressive treatment that differs from patients who don't have diabetes? That's the key in medicine. Once you make that observation, tailoring it to actually improve clinical outcomes. Right. From the onset, when they walk in, if they know they're diabetic, maybe there could be a more aggressive form of Hopefully treatment from the see. beginning. Exactly. That's the hope. Next question. Now that things are opening up, should we be concerned about using currency rather than credit cards? So many people wondering the same thing, Amy. And I think, first of all, it depends on how you felt before about using currency. Remember that the virus has not disappeared. It's still there. So we have to learn how to live with it. Good news is that just recently we heard the CDC say they believe that contact spread or fomite transmission, to geek out with the technical term, is not a major route of spread of coronavirus. So again, hand washing is the most important thing. And we have to balance. We can't live our life in a sterile environment. Yeah, that's right. This next question I'm going to be listening to because I haven't (laughs) seen my mother in five months. So this viewer asks, I haven't seen my mother in four months because she lives 1,200 miles away. What is the best way for me to visit? Is it safe to fly or is driving the best method? Well, interestingly, you know, what we know about the transmission of various respiratory pathogens in air travel is not as bad as people think. It's actually a lot safer than you think, depending on various conditions, obviously spacing, hand hygiene, wearing masks. That air is circulated every four minutes through HEPA filters on major airlines. So that's good news. Driving, of course, can be safe as well. But again, when you stop, if you need to get gas, use a bathroom, eat, stay overnight in a motel or hotel, you could get exposure then. So it's about balancing that and making an individual decision about what's best for you. Next question. Could a microwave or oven kill COVID-19 on surfaces like paper, plastic or food? Probably. But again, to go back to the CDC recent finding, they really don't think that surfaced contact or transmission is a major concern here for this spread. So microwave or intense heat kills almost everything. Um, But where are you going to draw the line then, right? Right. You can't obviously microwave or heat everything. So um, I think it's a balance. And again, the respiratory transmission, much, much more of a risk. Yeah, that's important to remember when you're weighing what to (laughs) do, right? right? (laughs) All right. Next question. Do you think we will see requirements for international travel that may include showing testing and results for both people entering and leaving the U.S.? Well, Very interesting question, because, again, you and I have spoken about this so much. If you test someone, it doesn't catch everyone who's infected. That's just a basic premise of infectious disease, because there is a latency period from when someone is exposed to when the disease starts to manifest, either with symptoms or, in this case, 40 percent possibly don't have any symptoms. So if you screen based on symptoms, you're going to miss people. Any test can have false negatives. So whether we're going to see that coming soon to a theater near us... 
unclear at this point. I'm sure people are looking at it country by country. But again, that's not the only infectious disease that we have to worry about. It's just added to the list. And right now it's at the top of the list. That's true. That's true. All right, Dr. Jen, always giving us that good perspective. We appreciate it. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. This summer is going to look a lot different this year due to the coronavirus. Many camps are closed or are operating on limited capacity, which means parents will have to switch from homeschool teacher to camp counselor. Well, here to help and tell us all about her virtual summer camp called Happy Camper Live is Allison Miller. Allison, thanks so much for being with us. And tell us how you created Happy Camper Live. So I'm actually a real-life summer camp director. I've been a camp director for 22 years. And about two and a half years ago, my husband and daughter volunteered at Global Camps Africa, and they spent two weeks working with kids from the poorest townships of Soweto. And when they came back, their lives were changed. And they kept talking about their experience and the impact it had on the kids that they work with. And day after day, we'd be in these conversations. And I said to my husband, I want to bring summer camp to every kid in the world no matter where they are geographically, no matter what their socioeconomic background is, I want to bring them the magic of summer camp. And so this was created two and a half years ago when we spent two summers um, filming and uh, engaging real camp counselors in producing these hundreds of camp activities that are part of our website today. All right. And so, yes, I can understand how that might happen in person, but how do you bring that experience to these kids virtually? Well, what's great is we have so many things that we can bring kids um, into our world. We have live activities every day where we have these real camp counselors that are engaging with the kids, um, inspiring them in terms of what their passions are. And then we have hundreds of other activities that we have produced that have sports and music and art and fitness and dancing and all of the things that we do at summer camp, bringing them right to their homes. We also created this 360-degree virtual experience where they actually go into the camp and they can try those activities and experience them in the actual facilities in a campground. So while we can't bring them all to camp, Mm -hmm. we are bringing camp to them. Pretty cool. And I'm sure parents who are listening to this are thinking this sounds pretty nice. But the next question will be, does it cost money to participate? So we have free content every single day for kids, and we make that accessible. That's part of my mission. We have live content as well as recorded content that they can experience, as well as a subscription model, which is $4.99 for a month or $11.99 for three months. So we tried to price it very reasonably, but there's plenty, plenty of things for the kids to do that's free. And also we have a great blog that gives parents tons and tons of ideas of what they can also do, too. Well, Allison Miller, thank you for all that you're doing. And I'm sure parents everywhere are applauding your efforts as well. Thank you so much and have a wonderful summer. Thank you. You too. Now, the rising problem of dropping vaccination rates, a casualty of the coronavirus pandemic. ABC's Diane Macedo with the warning from doctors and some creative possible solutions. As the world anxiously awaits a vaccine for COVID-19, experts warn children nationwide are falling behind on other vaccines, leaving them vulnerable to dangerous, preventable diseases. A recent survey by ABC News shows every one of the 20 states that responded reported a rapid decrease in the number of children receiving routine vaccinations. This after the CDC reported the number of vaccine doses ordered from mid-March to mid-April was down from last year by 2.5 million. Doctors warn the drop could lead to so-called mini-epidemics. Measles, 
There's also pertussis. We're really worried we're going to see untold cases of measles, and measles is way more infectious than COVID is. They're now trying to assure patients that the doctor's office is a safe place to be. As I recently took my son for his own vaccinations, the waiting room was completely empty, and his doctor assured me precautions are in place. We see sick visits in the afternoon, then we clean everything up, decontaminate overnight, and start everything all over again. We wear protective gowns to help protect you and me. Some are also finding creative ways to make these visits as easy as possible. Here in New York, my pediatrician has teamed up with adult doctors to offer family checkups. The children can get seen by the pediatrician, and then the adults who may have been neglecting their own health care can come to get seen as well, all at the same time. For me, it meant I could just walk down the hall and get my own checkup, long overdue. I would not have gotten my checkup otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. The trip I was fearing for me and my son ended up bringing me much peace of mind for his health and my own. And our thanks to Diane for that. A challenge parents and caregivers are facing right now is understanding the importance of getting your children vaccinated, even and maybe even especially during a pandemic. So to shed a little more light and answer a few questions on the topic of vaccines, please welcome Dr. Harvey Karp, renowned pediatrician, sleep expert, inventor of The Snoo, and New York Times bestselling author. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Karp. So if you can start by telling us the importance of getting your kids vaccinated before, during, and after a pandemic. I know it's a crazy, crazy time. And of course, everybody's been sheltering at home. And so that's caused a real drop in visits to the doctor and immunizations. But you know, we would, parents would line up around the block if there were a vaccine against COVID. And we have great vaccines against so many illnesses that are even much more serious for young children than COVID is. Um, measles, uh, meningitis, um, things like that, whooping cough which can be quite, quite serious and land children in the hospital or even worse. So we, it, it's understandable why there's been a reduction in the number of, of uh, vaccinations. Some states like Massachusetts and Minnesota show a 60 or 70% drop. But now that we're kind of inching back into our lives, we also have to get back into um, getting our children protected and there are so many ways that doctors are making that easy and safe for families. That's right. And I know you say there are two reasons we should not put off those vaccines. What are they? Well, of course, one is to protect your child, right? I mean, you want your child to be protected against getting some serious illness. The other is to protect all the other children in your community, because these are very contagious diseases. Measles a huge outbreak in, in Washington state earlier in the year. Um, measles is like a thousand times more contagious than COVID is. Um, and so just as all of the other children who have gotten vaccinated and all of the parents who have brought their kids to the doctors to get vaccinated over the last 10 years are protecting your child right now, so there's less illness around, the babies who are born a month and two and a year from now are depending on all of us to get our vaccines to keep the rates of of illnesses uh, low so they're not at risk. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And obviously we know it's important to keep our babies and our children safe, but sometimes as parents, we forget that we're important too. So explain what parents can do to stay safe and healthy while keeping their family safe. Well, you know, as Jen said earlier, it's all about um, good hygiene right now. You know, wash your hands or use hand sanitizer and wear a mask when you're out in public and uh, try to get your sleep, which is hard to do as, as a parent. 
But, um, you know, you want to do the best you can to avoid COVID right now. That's the big scary thing. And the last thing a parent wants is to get sick with that. Babies don't do so badly with it, but adults can be seriously ill. So probably the number one thing for parents to do right now is to do all those good hygiene um, recommendations that uh, that all doctors are talking about. Yes, because if we're not healthy, we can't take care of the people we love. Dr. Harvey Karp, thank you so much for that very important advice. We appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. Be safe. Thank you. Same to you. The Camden Coalition is a nonprofit organization based in Camden, New Jersey, that works to improve care for individuals who have complex health and social needs. Well, now the organization has helped turn a local New Jersey hotel into a shelter for individuals recovering from COVID-19 who are either homeless or do not have a safe place to quarantine. Here to discuss the incredible work the Camden Coalition has been doing is Michelle Adenik, a registered nurse and clinical manager at the organization. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us and tell Tell us first just how the Camden Coalition happened in the first place. Thanks for having me. Um, the Camden Coalition for years has worked to serve vulnerable individuals in the Camden community and around the Camden community um, to improve their health and well-being. And we've always really lived by the philosophy that it takes a village to support the community's needs. And so we've always had strong partnerships. And when the pandemic hit, we worked with existing partnerships with the Volunteers of America who run the local shelters and the county, and we all shared the understanding that there was going to be people within our community who would test positive for COVID and would need a safe place to go to quarantine. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful story how it happened organically. So can you walk me through your daily routine, what the care process is like for these people? Yeah, so many, most of our the people who arrive are um, come as referrals from either the hospital or community organizations. And then when they arrive, we, they stay at the hotel and our nurses call them um, on the phone mostly to make sure that their symptoms, monitoring their symptoms and making sure they have their needs met. And then we do a lot of coordination with their primary care doctors, medication coordination, things like that. And in some instances, if we need to do more thorough assessment, then we will go into the hotel to do that. That's incredible. I know all the while making sure that workers like yourself are staying safe as well as the patients. What happens once an individual is ready to leave the hotel? So once somebody is ready to leave, we get really excited and we say, hey, you kicked COVID. And um, we make sure that they have a a safe place to transition to for housing. So the Volunteers of America has been doing a great job of helping um, individuals get into transition to a shelter or another option to where they can go and, and continue to heal. That is beautiful in every way. Thank you so much for all that you do, Michelle Adenick, for the work from you and the Camden Coalition. We appreciate it. Thank you. And we turn now to our Dr. Jen Ashton for final thoughts on this Monday. So, Amy, I want to give people a prescription to deal with the intense emotional and psychological stress, as well as the physical stress that everyone is dealing with right now. So that's going to be the theme of the week. And I'm going to kick it off with one of the most important things we can all do for our head-to-toe health, which is sleep. We've talked about before how sleep has been very commonly disrupted during the pandemic for a slew of reasons. Sleep has a major PR problem in this country. We look at it like it's a luxury. It is a medical necessity. And if people are listening that want to do something to improve their immune system, start with sleep. An adult, seven to nine hours a night, there are powerful associated effects and causative effects that being sleep deprived can have on your immune system. So Make today the priority to set a regular sleep schedule. Make your bedroom cold, dark, and quiet. I promise you 
that getting seven to nine hours of sleep will improve how you think, how you feel, and potentially really improve your immune system as well. Thank you very much, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Jen. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.